Howdy, I'm Andrew, your friendly host of the award-winning Petrus Development Show, a podcast where I interview great development officers and ministry leaders about how they raise more money for their organization. Subscribe to the Petrus Development Show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to the Holy Donors Podcast. Join Andrew, Matt, Ren, and me, Thaddeus, as every week we bring you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. So, Andrew, you ready to get started? Can't wait. She has tears in her eyes, and she's holding a piece of paper that looks like it came from the telegram office. You ask your servant, is everything all right? You immediately forget that it's a blazing hot day and you were just sitting on the porch fanning yourself and trying to stay cool. There are no birds chirping, no carriages, and no breeze in that sweltering summer of 1906. It's so still outside you can almost hear your six sisters sitting next to you sweating. All you wanted was a cool glass of iced tea, but for some reason, your servant hadn't returned with a refill, just a quivering letter. You were starting to get a little perturbed, but now, as you sit there staring at your favorite maid, you realize something's not right. Your anger turns to fear, and you ask your servant, Louise, I said, is everything all right? I'm afraid not, ma'am. Mr. Scanlon, ma'am, he's dead. Welcome back to episode three in our story about Tim Scanlon. Last episode, we heard stories about how Tim fled to Mexico to avoid the Civil War how he made a fortune selling cotton to basically everybody, including the Union, the the Confederates, France, Britain, everybody. He was appointed alderman of the Third Ward. He was appointed mayor for his first term and then voted the next two, served three terms. He served as the postmaster of the city and later as the president of the first waterworks company in the history of Houston. And then, Andrew, you dropped a bomb at the end when we learned that after his hard work, he went on vacation— And he had a heart attack in Chicago and died Mm -hmm. in episode two. Yet we're in episode three. (laughs) Uh, So there's got to be more to the story. And I'm curious where we're going from here since he's dead. Yeah. So thanks, Matt. It's a big story when one of the wealthiest men in the city dies unexpectedly. But it's pretty darn incredible when he dies with no will. Right. But that's what happened. Tim owned literally hundreds of thousands of acres of land and property all across the state of Texas. And really, even across the U.S., he was a key investor in dozens of major corporations. He had seven surviving daughters, and yet he died without a clear plan for what would happen with any of that. I'm curious what would happen, because that's, even today, that would be a huge deal. Yeah. So Tim's body is returned to Houston. He's buried in Glenwood Cemetery next to his wife, Sophia, who died in 1898. His seven daughters attend, along with quite a few mourners and friends. Tim was incredibly devout and a member of the Sacred Heart Co-Cathedral in Houston. We haven't really discussed much about his faith up to this point, but he was a prominent member of the Catholic community in Houston. In fact, four of his daughters were baptized by the Bishop of Galveston in Houston. Wow. Seven daughters. Yep. So in total, Tim and Sophia had 10 children, with seven of them surviving into adulthood. His daughters were Mary Ellen, Caroline Mary, Catherine, who went by Kate, Margaret, Charlotte, Lillian, and Stella. They all attended Catholic school, were baptized in the church, and there's even a cute story about them marching to church down the street. Andrew, why don't you tell us that story? Um, 
So they used to march down the street to go to church. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, no, no. Tim, being a recognized member of society, would line all of his daughters up, and they would literally walk down the street to go to church. And so people got used to seeing Tim and the seven daughters. All and that they were a very devout yeah. family. Yeah, yeah. When Tim died in 1906, it was his daughter, Kate, who stepped up to manage the estate and his business dealings. One of his dreams had been to build a large, modern office building on property at Maine and Preston, the location of the first Texas White House, where Sam Houston lived when he was president of the Republic of Texas. So in 1909, they finished building what would be known as the Scanlon Building on that very site. Which they they owned that property. It wasn't that they were going right. to buy it. Yeah, that was his dream. They owned the property. Tim was kind of holding on to it to be able to build this tall office building. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Mm-hmm. Our research suggests that Kate hired a famous architect out of Chicago to design it, and at the time, it was the tallest building in Houston at 11 stories. And I wonder if, you know, getting the the Chicago architect to design this building, was that also maybe a nod to his father's promise to make Houston the Chicago of the South? Mm, Yeah, it's a good point. I don't know. In fact, according to Larry Massey, president of the Scanlon Foundation, this building kicked off a skyscraper race in Houston's downtown in order to begin fashioning the skyline that exists today. Yeah, I think in Houston today, you know, you look at the the landscape, the tallest building is the J.P. Morgan Chase Tower at 74 stories, 1,002 feet tall. Uh-huh. Yeah. 1,002 so, feet tall? Must have been where the builder didn't want it to be less than 1,000 feet. So <laughs> the weather vane on top was two yeah. feet tall. So, I mean, I'm just curious, man. I'm just throwing this out there. What What's the tallest building in Oklahoma? I hate you guys. <laughs> I'm seceding <laughs> from holy donors. <laughs> oh. I'm sorry. I just had to say it. Yeah. All right. This is the point where I'm supposed to say very cool, but I'm going to say very uncool. <laughs> so what was the effect on the family of not having a will? Okay. So good question. Tim did not have a will when he died, but he had expressed to his family and to his attorney, Louis Lindenberg, that everything was to be passed to his daughters equally as long as they lived. When one died, her share got divided equally between the remaining sisters, right? So when the last daughter died, the estate should be used ultimately to support the Catholic Church. So he didn't have a will, but he had seven daughters to pass everything along to. Interesting thing that happened, though, not surprisingly, is that rumors started almost right away. (gasps) I am shocked to hear that. (laughs) Clutch your pearls, Andrew. clutching my pearls. Clutch those pearls. None of the sisters were married at the time, and they lived a fairly quiet social life. So the most common rumor was that Tim had promised everything to his daughters so long as they remained single. That's really interesting, and it's it's funny how people started making rumors about them. Mm-hmm. But, of course, that's not true. It, no, it's not true. I mean, the rumor was that the will stipulated that they couldn't marry. There was no will. Like, literally, there was no will. So it couldn't have been true. You know, I think that the daughters— they just loved being with each other, right? They lived together their entire lives, and I think that they were just a very tight family. They weren't very social. They didn't go seek out suitors, so to speak, and so, you know, that that was just the life that they chose. You know, what I think is so interesting to me was at this time that none of them joined a religious community. You know, we've got a family over in France that's kind of contemporaneous to this family, all sisters. I'm thinking of St. Therese of Lisieux's family and— she and all of her sisters that survived into adulthood joined religious orders. Hmm. So that's what I'm, I'm really surprised that none of them decided to become, to become nuns. 
because that just would have been not unusual at all. It wouldn't right. have been seen as unusual at all. Yeah, I don't know. So they stayed single, but after the estate went through the, the courts, basically everything stayed more or less the same. Yes, but sort of, right? So before he died, Tim had trained Kate on how to run the businesses. So she took over that responsibility for a while. I just don't think she had the same ambitions that her father did, right? So they did open a store called the Picture Shop on the bottom floor of that new Scanlon building that they finished in 1909. And out of the Picture Shop, they sold religious textbooks and pictures. They also used their home on Main Street as something of a literary center. Yeah, Charlotte. Now, that's daughter number five. She was the most outgoing and she would invite performers, musicians to the house to read Shakespeare, to play small concerts. She died in 1926, and then the doors of the mansion, for the most part, closed again. Mary Ellen, Caroline, and Margaret had all passed away by this point as well, so it was only Kate, Lillian, and Stella to carry on. Yeah, and what the three of them mostly focused on during their time was their charity work. They loved supporting Catholic organizations and individuals, but they 100% did not do it for the glory. In fact, there's a story about Kate who called an employee who they had helped financially and kind of chastised her for telling anybody else. She said, quote, we gave you the money because we liked you. No one else needs to know. Well, that fits with the mentality of many of our other holy donors, right? I mean, George Drake only gave anonymously. Raskob never turned away a priest, but he didn't want the recognition, right? Does your nonprofit organization need to raise more money? Work with the leading Teach to Fish consulting firm, Petrus Development. Check us out at PetrusDevelopment.com. Why do you all think that might be? Why is there that tie between anonymity and some of these large donors? I think it's this thought of a blessing where they really altruistically want to help. They don't want the recognition. They, don't want, they, they did it for no other reason other than to simply help another human being. And so when they start getting something in almost a reward back, it seems wrong to them because that wasn't the, the underlying reason of why they gave. They gave because that is what they felt should be done mm-hmm. and what they needed to do. And they d- gave from such a pure point in their life that they just they didn't want anything in return. They just wanted to help. Yeah, and I think that also goes to some people's living out of some gospel commands is anonymous giving. So, you know, Christ said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, and also the idea of don't put on sackcloth and ashes and go around making a big sign of the fact that you're fasting. Just do it so that that nobody knows mm-hmm. that, that you're fasting. And so some people follow that by donating anonymously. So maybe that's maybe that's where some of it came from, too. Yeah, and I don't think it necessarily has to do with anonymous giving, but it's really this sense of humility, right? Mm-hmm. So in doing a lot of these shows, the three things that I've come to think about when I think of holy donors, characteristics, is faithfulness, humility, and radical generosity. And you just look at every one of our people that we've talked about so far, Danny Thomas, John Raskob, Catherine Drexel, Babe Ruth— there's a just an underlying sense of humility of I'm not doing this kind of like you said I'm not do I'm not giving like the Pharisees so that everybody looks at me I'm just this is what I'm called to do and you know the other thing to think about is so a lot of what we do in our life is based on models that we look at and that we want to imitate in some way shape or form right so you know you go back and look at Danny Thomas his one of his models of giving generosity is his mom who 
she fell on her knees and she prayed, God, please save my son. And then she begged alms for a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was, uh, you know, I can't imagine she was going around telling people she did that. It was just the witness that she gave to her son. Right. You know, Likewise the, with Catherine Drexel's stepmother. Exactly. Yeah. With Emma. I think that's another great example. So, you know, there's, there's just something about these, these models of generosity. I mean, talking about the Scanlon sisters, like we know that Tim Scanlon was very generous. I mean, there's a story in 1887 of them building him building St. Nicholas Church. You know, we know that he supported the, had to support the diocese, had to support churches. There are plaques about the Scanlon Foundation all over the city of Houston about their giving, but not really about Tim himself. So, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't broadcasting this generosity. So think about, you know, the sisters who they're looking at as their model. It was probably, you know, in large part their dad who gave generously, but not for the glory of it. So earlier, Andrew, you mentioned some battles that the Scanlans were involved in. Yeah. Tell us more about that. Yeah, sure. So in 1931, one of their buildings caught fire, was badly damaged, and the insurance company wouldn't pay out because there was a rule that 50% of the building had to be ruined. The Scanlans ended up taking the insurance company to court And that case ultimately went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The Scanlans won. And that case, in fact, set precedent for how insurance payouts are performed still to this day. Isn't that kind of cool how something that happened in 1931, like with this family in Houston, is affecting case law for generations to come? Mm -hmm. So another battle that is much, much larger, and I think this is the craziest story of them all, So their family house was on Main Street, and it had been the only home that the sisters had ever known. Well, in the 1930s, the city decided they wanted to widen Main Street, and they needed to tear down this large oak tree that was in the front yard of the Scanlon's home. The Scanlon Oak, as it was known really all over town, was very important to the girls, and so they resisted. They said no. They ended up going to court, and the sisters lost. So the sisters were so upset by this, and they took it as an affront to their whole family that you want to guess what they did? They sued the city. They demolished the entire house. What? <laughs> Not just the tree, but yeah. the house. They, they tore it all the way down. The only thing they kept was the front doors, and then there was this beautiful marble fountain in the front yard. They took that, and then they took pieces of the, the destroyed building, and they moved it out to a plantation home that they had acquired back in 1913. They ended up building a beautiful plantation home out there on what they owned was 8,000 acres, and that's where the sisters live for the rest of their life. Just a couple years later, in 1936, Kate passed away, so now it was just, we're down to Lillian and Stella. They moved out there, and they never really had anything to do with Houston ever again. I think what also strikes me is, gosh, the 1930s were a difficult, challenging time for the Scanlon sisters, and... That's on top of them living through the Great Depression. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> they lose a building. They decide to tear down their house, yeah. uh, move out to the plantation home. What a uh, time of turmoil for, for the family. And they're all dying. Now we've, we're only left with two. Yeah. So this is kind of a point that I want to make that is about Tim Scanlon in general, right? As we've been doing this research, there's just not a lot of written about him. There's not, he's not in the, as that is you mentioned earlier, he's not in the classic history books. You know, here we are with a couple of uh, resources that we've really been relying on and some interviews to, to put this story together. But in my mind, what I observe or what I'm kind of taking away from a lot of this is 
that Tim Scanlon was an Irish Catholic immigrant, right? He grew up in Texas as what ultimately we would say he was a Republican in a Democrat-controlled state, right? So he was mm-hmm. kind of on the outs. He was installed as a Reconstruction alderman, Reconstruction mayor, Reconstruction postmaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he he wasn't afraid to pick fights based on what he thought was the right thing to do. But in a sense, the fact that there's nothing written about him, you know, we move forward a couple of years. You've got the Scanlons who have done so much for the city, and here they are. They want to tear down the, the oak tree in front of their home, their family home. And in today's culture, we would say, like, Tim Scanlon kind of got canceled by the culture, by the people around him. And I kind of see that as what's happened in that there's not a lot of information. He was kind of erased from the history of Texas because the powers that be who took over in 1876 and ran the state up through the civil rights era, right? He was on the wrong side of history. And so he just kind of got left behind. I think yeah. I'm repeating kind of what you said, but but summarizing, I think just because he was a Republican, Reconstruction mm-hmm. Republican, he was Catholic, he was an Irish immigrant, all those markers kind of counted against him in being seen as a as a fabric of, of mainstream Texas history for a long, long time. And, and maybe maybe our little show can be a part of resurrecting his legacy to some degree. Hey, Ren, do you remember a couple years ago when we went on that snowshoe hike in the woods trying to figure out how to help more Catholic organizations raise more money? I do, Andrew. We had a great conversation about the need for churches and other nonprofit organizations to build new buildings, hire new staff, and increase their mission, but their need for a strong foundation of development skills. From that hike and that conversation came the idea for a manual for the annual fund, which is the fundamentals of development. From that conversation, we built the Petrus Annual Manual Program. It's crazy how just a couple of years later, we've helped dozens of nonprofit organizations just through a simple development calendar, guides and samples, and a weekly call with a consultant, raise more money and get a more solid footing for their development operations. It is great. You can learn about the annual manual yourself by visiting petrusdevelopment.com slash annual manual. So here we are in the 1930s, and finally Lillian and Stella have basically like had enough, right? The city wants to pick a fight with them, tear down their oak tree. Well, they're done with the city. So after everything that Tim did building up the city, you know, as the alderman, as the mayor, as the postmaster, as the president of the waterworks, now the city has essentially like turned their back on the Scanlon family, and Lillian and Stella are Dunskys. So they pack up and they move out to the country. They live together on this plantation for about 10 more years. And I think that they're really happy out there. They ended up building a chapel called the Sacred Heart Chapel. They opened that for mass every weekend for a lot of the black and the immigrant community living out in this area that they were, which ultimately became Siena, south of Sugarland, south of Houston. They brought in sisters from the Missionary Catechist of Divine Providence to teach the community. They hosted Catholic retreats and events, but they never really sought out anybody else, especially from the city of Houston, for any more business purposes. So after they left Houston, it sounds like they lived a nice, quiet life helping the church. Yeah, I think those two things really became their passion. They were a lot like Catherine Drexel and her stepmother, Emma, like you mentioned earlier, that is. They continued to help people who came to them, and they were very charitable. In fact, they really didn't have a whole lot of disposable cash at this time. So when somebody came to them with a cause or a need that they wanted to support, they would literally sell parcels of land and give the proceeds to whoever was asking. 
And some of these requests were for pretty large projects. For example, they helped with the founding of St. Joseph's Hospital in Houston. I, I bet that cost a few acres. They helped found the University of St. Thomas in 1947. A little bit more land needed to be sold. They gave nine acres to the diocese of Galveston, Houston, to establish a retreat center for the Catholic Youth Organization. But it seems like their favorite cause of all were those families that came out to Sacred Heart Chapel on Sundays. Because after Mass, the sisters loved to stand outside handing out candy to the kids. Hmm. But only the ones that behaved in Mass. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like my mom. It sounds like it brought them great joy to be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. You look at the Scanlon sisters, they grew up without many needs. Their father was wealthy, literally one of the wealthiest people in the entire state and in the entire country. They had a big house, but you never really heard about extravagant trips or gifts. It was really their desire to help that brought them, ultimately brought them true joy. Yeah, I agree that very beautiful example that they set with the end of their life and and how they use their time and their resources. And remember, they... As a family, they did also live through a a lot of time of turmoil, like I was saying. You know, you go back to their father's life living through the secession crisis in Texas, then the Civil War and all that brought, then all the turmoil of Reconstruction, then they have to live through the Depression. They didn't have exactly uh, the easiest World War life. I in there, too. World the War Spanish I, World flu? War II. Spanish flu. Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The curse of the Great Bambino. <laughs> Yeah, that that too. Hey, and don't forget the Titanic. We got that in there as well. And the Alamo. Remember the Alamo? Yeah, Recuerde el Alamo. Remember that. Okay, let's wrap this uh, episode up. Speaking of wrapping things up, we're approaching the end of life for these generous sisters. Now, Andrew, you mentioned earlier that on the last sister's death, Mm -hmm. the estate was supposed to go to the church according to the arrangements worked out with the lawyer. So did that happen? So in 1947, Lillian finally passed away. She's the second sister to pass away, or the second to last, excuse me. And they used those proceeds to start the Scanlon Foundation. Here's a clip from Larry Massey, president of the Scanlon Foundation, about what happened with the estate when she died. When Lillian died, you know, it was one half undivided interest of this, of the estate, went into the foundation, which then left Stella with one half undivided interest of what was left. As a former trust officer, the value of an undivided half interest is hard to kind of get your arms around that. You definitely can't do a lien on it. And then when Stella dies, of course, the cousins get all excited, at least one of them, and rally the troops to sue and try to get a payday. And then Scanlon won the the lawsuit, and then that settled it. So explain to me again, I don't understand, what is Larry getting at about how one half of an undivided interest is difficult to get your arms around? Because it was basically half of the estate, so they couldn't liquidate it, they couldn't sell it. So it started the foundation, but there was no actual money in the foundation. Does that make sense? Okay. So they couldn't do anything until both sisters had passed away. That's correct, yeah. Okay. But that's when they started the foundation. Before that, nobody had started a trust or had started the foundation. That's when the, the lawyer got in and actually filed the paperwork and started it. Wow. So that's that's really interesting how they split up the estate for, yeah. for the foundation. But what was Larry talking about with the cousins? So, unfortunately, we're about to go into the last battle, which is about to play out for the Scanlon sisters. 
The death of Stella in 1950 brings out some distant cousins who Larry is talking about who kind of want their piece of the Scanlon fortune. In fact, they're going to charge that Stella was, quote, feeble-minded, was, quote, a moron, and was, quote, kept a virtual prisoner in her own home at the end of her life. So the will actually ends up being contested and in court for over a year. Maybe this is why Tim Scanlon never had a will. Because he didn't want it to be hung up in court. It's maybe kind of mess, maybe yeah. so. So this is this is not free Brittany. It's free Stella. I think so. Yeah, I think you could do that. That works. So anyway, <laughs> what happens next? So in our final episode about the Scanlons, we'll reveal the results of these charges and talk about the legacy of philanthropy that still continues to this day. Can't wait. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Holy Donors, brought to you by Petrus Development in cooperation with Red Sea Catholic Radio. Theme music by Tommy Kibb, Third Top Productions, graphics by 86 Creative. If you like us, leave us a review, share us with your friends, and check us out at holydonors.com and on Instagram. Holy Donors, bringing you inspiring stories of radical generosity that have changed the world. All of our holy donors were connected to the organizations they support through great development officers. Do you want to learn to raise more money for your organization? Go to PetrusDevelopment.com education to learn about our free Petrus Academy offerings every month. See you there. All right. I got one. Before we start, we oh, need some, some edits. Yeah, Ready? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did the bald man exclaim when he received a comb for a present? Thanks, I'll never part with it. Thanks, I'll never part with hey, it. Hey, look at you. <laughs> he read it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good. What do y'all want to do the voice of Luis? Luis, I said it. Is everything all right? I'm right, afraid Dennis. not, ma'am. Mr. Scanlon, ma'am, he's dead. <laughs> I think it could just be read. I think it has to be acted out. <laughs> I'm afraid not, ma'am. Mr. Scanlon, ma'am, he's dead. You'll do it again without the, just so we can compare, you know. Oh, sure, sure. I'm afraid not, ma'am. Mr. (laughs) Scanlon, ma'am, he's dead. Nailed it. (laughs) All right, Matt, take take over here. Welcome back to episode three in our story about STEM Stim, stim, stim. I'm so glad that that's on tape. I'm so glad that that's been recorded. That was perfect. That was perfect. Stim, stim. Tanlin. There we go.